We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Maryland state government faces a shortfall of more than three-quarters of a billion dollars in the next budget year. Last month, Governor Moore told the Maryland Association of Counties the problem had been building for years, but it was obscured by extra pandemic money from the federal government and soaring stock market returns. Extra money in the short term could pad the budget, but extra money in the short term never fixed the budget. It was a mirage. And that's not partisan. It's facts. Now, Moore said, it's time for hard work and tough choices. Marylanders feel like they're paying a lot. And they aren't getting the best in return. I believe we have a responsibility to invest in our priorities. But first, we need to build a strategy for investment that shows the public that we can deliver results in sustainable ways. So at a time when Marylanders are feeling squeezed and skeptical, we need to do more than tighten our belts. We must rethink how state government actually does business. The budget shortfall and its consequences loom large over the state's 2024 legislative session, which begins tomorrow. Here to preview this session is the founding editor of the new site, Maryland Matters, Josh Kurtz. Kurtz began covering the State House in 1995 for the Gazette newspapers and has been reporting on Maryland politics ever since. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much for having me on, Sheila. And Pamela Wood is with us. She is government and politics reporter for the Baltimore Banner. Welcome back, Pamela. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sheila. Josh, why is Maryland facing a budget shortfall? I think part of the reason is, uh, as part of your clip said, there has been kind of a sugar high from from federal pandemic spending over the last few years. And, um, you know, revenues have been uh, steady at times, otherwise not so great. But I think there's just been there's just going to be a reordering now. uh, with the pandemic money drying up. It's not a desperately large shortfall, but in the context of the way things have been the past few years, it seems bigger. Pamela, you have written about one of the big challenges in the budget, transportation funding. The headline on your story was, a $3.3 billion hole. That's over six years. Outline what we can expect this year. Yes, so transportation funding in the state, this is highway projects, bridges, roads, transportation, transit, uh, has its own six-year budget for construction projects, and there is just not enough money, billions of dollars short, for the future years to complete all these scheduled programs. So the governor's uh, Department of Transportation has proposed a whole suite of uh cutbacks, um, keeping a few things in the pipeline. Um, So lawmakers are looking at, do we go with these cuts or do we find ways to raise money specifically for transportation? This is like the gas tax, your registration fees, uh, tolls, should there be a new fee for electric cars because, you know, they're not buying gas. And this is something lawmakers will start to wrestle with this year. And we're expecting it to continue into next year as well. So you're not expecting decisions on much about transportation this year? Or should we expect cuts? 
Um, what we're starting, we're going to start to see them address the problem, but not uh, necessarily get it all done in one year. And, you know, some of these uh, projected projects, such as the red line uh, in Baltimore, that's the east-west transit line that's long been anticipated. It's still in the planning stages. It doesn't cost a lot of money right now. The trick is how to find the money for you know, two, three, four years from now when you have construction that, that costs a lot more money. So what I'm hearing is that we're going to have a sort of a multi-year way of addressing the imbalance in the transportation budget, but we'll start to see some of it this year. Josh, funding for schools is a big issue. Some counties are saying they can't afford the costs built into the blueprint for Maryland's future. Do you expect the legislature to make changes? I think that's within the realm of possibility. I think it's it's uh, topmost on a lot of people's minds, and I think the legislature is going to face a lot of pressure from local governments to not uh, abandon the goals altogether, but maybe to ease some of the timelines uh, for, for spending and for implementing some of the programs. So, I mean, I think that's a very real possibility. You know, it's interesting... Uh, you know, the the sort of education, transportation funding conundrum. Um, last year, the Moore administration posed an extra $500 million each for transportation and education. The legislature changed that, and uh, they actually set aside $900 million extra for education and only $100 million for transportation. And so the kind of Ramificate, the ramifications of that are kind of continuing into this session. But, uh, you know, when we're talking about funding shortfalls, the, the blueprint education reform plan is one of the things that are, you know, being discussed prominently. Pamela, the Moore administration last month laid out a roadmap for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, like helping residents switch to electric heat pumps and electric water heaters and rebates to make electric cars more affordable. Any idea how they'll pay for this climate pollution reduction plan? Yeah, that's a great question, Sheila. Uh, the full suite of programs proposed uh, to for Maryland to help combat climate change uh, would clock in at a billion dollars a year. They don't have a billion dollars a year right now. So that, again, is going to be a question they look at. Which of these proposals might want we might they want to fund going forward, uh, how to prioritize these things. There's not a funding source yet for those programs. But you expect them to try to move ahead with these climate proposals? I think it remains to be seen, right? It's a difficult ask when you're trying to, you know, close a, a, a budget gap. Uh, at the same time, climate change is, of course, an, you know, a, a massive threat. And, you know, Maryland is not immune from the problems of climate change. So you, you sort of have a push-pull there about some will say, well, can we afford not to address this? But can you afford it when it's potentially up to a billion dollars? I'm interested in seeing how it works out. What if any of these uh, additional climate programs go forward? This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast speaking with Pamela Wood of the Baltimore Banner and Josh Kurtz of the news site Maryland Matters. Pamela, the governor is required to propose a balanced budget. The legislature is required to pass a balanced budget. The legislature has more power in the process than it used to. How do you expect that to play out? Yeah, that's right. The governor will put forward his budget proposal uh, next week. And uh, now lawmakers can, you know, slice and dice it a little bit. They can make some cuts. They can add money. Uh, 
before a couple of years ago, uh, they could only make some cuts. And if they want to reassign money, it was a sort of pretty please governor where you put it there. Now they have more flexibility. We saw them do a little bit of that last year, as Josh explained, uh, with the education money. Um, so, you know, we'll see how it goes through the process this year. Do the lawmakers, now that they're a little more comfortable with the process and knowing what power they have, could they do a little more? You know, it really remains to be seen, especially since we don't know yet exactly what's in the governor's budget. Josh, this is Governor Moore's second legislative session. What did you observe about his involvement last year? Well, last year was a kind of unique circumstance because he was a Democratic governor working with Democratic supermajorities in the legislature, taking over after eight years of a Republican governor. And so the the uh, Democrats who run the General Assembly really had a lot invested in his success. And they were kind of anxious to have him take the lead on some stuff, and they were going to defer to him on some stuff. Um, but the reality is the legislature has gotten very used to kind of uh, pursuing its own agenda uh, during the eight years Republican Larry Hogan was governor. And the question now is, um, how widespread, how aggressive is the governor's agenda going to be? How much is the legislature going to push him to do more, maybe to be more progressive on certain issues? Um, so there's a very interesting dynamic at play. As Pam has said, um, you know, we have just not seen a lot of his agenda yet, which is somewhat surprising going, you know, with the start of the session uh, happening Wednesday. Um, and so it'll be kind of an interesting push and pull. And particularly, one of the questions is, will there be tax hikes on the wealthy that come out of the legislature this year? And who wants it? Who's going to work for it? Is the governor going to resist that? I mean, these are all kind of mysteries at the moment, but part of what makes uh, the next 90 days going to be so interesting. Well, Pamela, what do we know about Governor Moore's agenda for this year? Yeah, we know precious little about the governor's agenda this year. He's only um, done one rollout announcement, uh, a couple bills focused on uh, veterans and, and military families. Um, we've been, you know, promised a, a dozen or more proposals from the governor. Uh, we haven't seen them yet. We're expecting to hear something about housing and uh, access to housing and housing affordability. We're hoping to hear about uh, juvenile crime and juvenile justice, which has been a very big issue in recent months. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see, uh, find out what he has to propose. And we're going to pick up on some of those issues when we come back from a short break. We're with Pamela Wood of the Baltimore Banner and Josh Kurtz of Maryland Matters. We'll talk about juvenile justice and Pimlico's future. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. 
Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. This morning, we're previewing issues lawmakers are expected to tackle as the legislative session gets underway tomorrow. Juvenile crime is near the top of that list. In September, acting Prince George's County Deputy Police Chief Zachary O'Leary told the House of Delegates Judiciary Committee that crimes committed by children are a rising concern. It's no exaggeration to say that time and time again, we are told by community members that crimes committed by juveniles tops their list of concerns. Residents regularly express their frustration about a perceived lack of accountability among juvenile offenders. Many of our residents have expressed that they actually live in fear of getting gas or even shopping in their own community. O'Leary said a new state law hinders police solving crimes. The Child Interrogation Protection Act has severely curtailed the ability of law enforcement to properly investigate juvenile crime. Even when there are cases of juveniles who are willing to speak with investigators, they are unable to do so as this law has removed their ability to decide to do so. How will lawmakers tackle concern about juvenile crime this session? Two veteran reporters are with us this morning, Pamela Wood of the Baltimore Banner and Josh Kurtz, founding editor of Maryland Matters. Pamela, why so much concern about juvenile crime? Yeah, well, absolutely. We have seen that kids are continuing to get into trouble, and we have seen very high numbers of actually children being victimized, children being shot uh, as well, uh, particularly in Baltimore. And, you know, it's a concern for, you know, parents of these children, the children themselves, the community. There's been a lot of focus in the past year or so on juvenile justice. So, Everybody wants to be a part of a solution, although there are, you know, broad variations in what the right approach is. Should recent reforms uh, in support of children be rolled back? Should they be tougher on children? Or is it that there need to be improvements in the process or the services available to these kids when they get in trouble? It's a really thorny discussion that's going to take up, I believe, a lot of the attention over the next 90 days. In particular, the Child Interrogation Protection Act that passed in 2022, what does it do and what changes are prosecutors and police advocating for? Yeah. What that does is that, you know, we all have, uh, we know about our Miranda rights that, you know, you can remain silent, you can speak to a lawyer. Well, that applies to children as well. Uh, unfortunately, children don't often know this and they can be coerced into false confessions more often than adults. So the, the act that was approved a couple years ago requires that when a child is in police custody, uh, you know, not on the street, they are being questioned by police. They have to call a lawyer first, and the public defender has a hotline uh, for the police to ring up and allow a child to consult with a lawyer uh, and, and get some advice on how to proceed. This has come under fire from prosecutors and police who believe it's hampering how they do their job. They believe it's difficult for their investigations, you know. But the public defenders and those who are supporting the children say, "Look, they have a constitutional right to have an attorney. They should not have less rights than adults do." So that's kind of the crux of the debate that's happening here, and we expect to take up a lot of the attention over the next 90 days. Josh, other juvenile justice reform measures took effect in 2022, such as giving the state's juvenile justice agency greater discretion in choosing diversion for youth aged 13 and older and prohibiting detention for misdemeanors. Are you expecting the pendulum to swing the other way this year? I think there's some sentiment for that, Sheila, but I think 
um, it's going to be kind of offset a little bit by, um, uh, I, I, well, let me put it this way. I think any kind of juvenile justice package will be, will focus on penalties to a degree and, uh, and uh, you know, who's, who's eligible for, uh, for stiffer penalties and who isn't. But I think it's all going to be balanced a little bit by kind of attempts to focus on some of the underlying causes of juvenile crime, uh, you know, poverty, lack of opportunity, education. Um, you know, remember, we've got, uh, you know, a progressive Democratic governor, we've got Democratic supermajorities in this legislature. So, um, you know, there's not going to sort of autom automatically be a huge, uh, you know, push for law and order all of a sudden. It's going to be kind of a, a balanced approach, I think. Aid in dying, which would allow people who are terminally ill to obtain life-ending drugs, has been proposed almost every year since 2015. It has not passed. The advocacy group Compassion and Choices reports that aid in dying is now legal in 10 states and the District of Columbia. Pamela, do you expect this to come up again in this session? Yes, I am expecting that we will get a debate on the medical aid in dying. This came very close um, before the pandemic. It had passed the House of Delegates. It failed in the Senate on a rare tie vote uh, that was rather dramatic. It's it's a very difficult choice for lawmakers, but it kind of got backburnered a little bit uh, with COVID and with um, you know, sort of the same folks down here in Annapolis. Well, we've since had an election. Uh, there's some fresh blood in here, some new eyes on it, a different governor. And I am expecting this year that we're going to get significant debate and the bill might move uh, forward to a vote this year. That's Baltimore Banner politics and government reporter Pamela Wood. Here on the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. Also with us is Josh Kurtz, founding editor of the news site Maryland Matters. We're talking about some of the issues we can expect the General Assembly to work on during the next 90 days. The future of Maryland horse racing has been a topic of much discussion in previous legislative sessions. Pamela, what do we know now about plans for Pimlico Stadium in Park Heights? Yes, yeah, so the future of uh, Maryland thoroughbred racing um, seems to be a question that comes up every few years. It's it's really struggling as an industry. The latest plan uh, that has been put out is for the Stronach Group, which owns Pimlico and Laurel uh, racetracks, to turn over Pimlico to some sort of state entity or nonprofit. The state would then operate thoroughbred uh, horse racing there, hire in an operator, and use money that's already been identified uh, for improvements and modernizing the track. So this is the sort of latest rescue option. If this is going to go forward, it's going to need legislation in the General Assembly. They're going to have to authorize, you know, where the money goes and how it operates. Well, state lawmakers earmarked hundreds of millions of dollars for improving Laurel and Pimlico in 2020. Has any of that work taken place? That's right. And what happened is that nothing happened. Uh, honestly, <laughs> there was a there was a combination of delays um, from COVID. Costs went up because of the inflation that we have all experienced. It became more expensive. And it turned out that the Stronach Group would, uh, for a complicated reason, take a very big tax hit uh, for accepting money to improve the tracks. So that money wasn't enough to modernize both the Laurel Racetrack and the Pimlico Racetrack. So a new commission was set up this year. They looked at the situation, the 
state of Maryland talked with the Stronach group and they came forward with this plan that focuses now all on Pimlico and eventually phasing out racing at Laurel and using that same money that was identified before, but using it uh, on Pimlico and on creating a new uh, training facility. So this is not one of the budget problems. There's some funding identified for this one. There, There is. There's a suite of um, uh, subsidies for the horse racing industry from slot machines and some other places, and it's redirecting that existing money. So this is not a new ask. This is reorienting money that's already been identified. Josh, the rights of child abuse survivors, recreational cannabis, access to abortion, those were Democratic centerpieces of last year's session. What are the Democrats' top priorities this year? Well, I think we've hit on a few um, already. I think in addition, we haven't talked about housing. Um, The governor has promised a package of uh, bills to uh, uh, sort of uh, account for the shortfall in housing units in the state and particularly affordable housing units. That So, I mean, there's going to be something that makes it easier to uh, uh, build housing in the state. There's going to be, I think the state is going to talk about setting up some kind of financing agency within state government that allows more housing to be built. And I think there will also be uh, some bills or uh, maybe a big legislative package on tenants' rights, some of which I think the governor is going to get behind, some of which has been around for a while in the legislature already. Um but I think we've I think we've probably hit on most of them. I think to get back to climate for a minute, I mean, there are there are legislators ready to go with bills that will at least begin to address some of the recommendations in the governor's big climate report. We don't yet have a signal from the administration which ones they're ready to support or take a lead on, but I think you'll see a bunch of that being debated this session um and you know and 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 as as we started out saying it all comes under this kind of uh circumstance of fiscal uncertainty and so you know there's a lot of ambitious proposals out there but someone is going to have to prioritize them at some point and we're not quite at that point yet where that happens Pamela what do you pick up as uh, top priorities of republican lawmakers Yeah, I've spent some time talking to Republican leaders and, you know, they have the same priorities. They predict the same biggest issues, Uh, the the fiscal picture of the state, the financial picture and the budget. uh, But they're going to focus on fighting against any tax increases, Um, even tax increases on the wealthy, they say is not a good idea because the very wealthy can move and then you lose all the tax revenue from them. Uh, They're also focused on transportation funding. They question whether we're getting our bang for the buck out of the transit, um, you know, the metro system in D.C., uh, Baltimore's transit, the the red line, they, they question whether that's the best use of dollars. And they also are looking at, at juvenile crime. But again, they, they want to have some more accountability and they want to do things that they think will help, you know, police and prosecutors solve crimes um, uh, in an expeditious manner. So they, they have the same priorities. They come at it from a different perspective than the Democratic majority. Thank you both for this overview, for telling us what to look out for. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Pamela Wood covers government and politics at the Baltimore Banner. Josh Kurtz is founding editor of the news site Maryland Matters. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to recent coverage of this year's anticipated legislative priorities. 
If you missed part of this morning's conversation, listen there or download the On the Record podcast. And tune in at noon today. Senate President Bill Ferguson will join Tom Hall on Midday. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.